Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. Um, I'm liking this fall weather. It's nice. Um, got to sit in several of my son's soccer games this past week. This, this coming week, I think, is, is his last games of the season, which is crazy to me that, uh, you know, they're already winding up. Um, that, and it's his last year of school, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a sad thing, you know, uh, watching those final games. Um, Jackie and I both growing up were not, at least more so me, I think she played some volleyball, but we weren't really athletes, right? We were both music people. Um, but, you know, when you have a child, it's really important to follow their lead, right? And not just try to make them interested in the things that you're interested in. Um, so we became those people on the side uh, cheering on soccer games. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until we, we uh, near the end when we discovered they had these, uh, they're like little huts you can sit in, <laughs> keep you warm on the side. I wish I would discovered that years ago, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, so... Uh, this Christmas Eve, just a note, um, some of you asked me, um, you knew, you've knew heard that I've been an opera singer, and you've asked, you know, hey, sing, sing for me, sing for me. Uh, I, the plan is for me to sing in the Christmas Eve service. Um, so, good or bad? <laughs> Already asked Pam Sherman if she would accompany me. And uh, I think uh, Greg Wollen and, and his band are going to be playing before and after the service out in the, in the lobby. So we're really working hard to uh, create a special Christmas Eve service for you guys. Um, on the note of sports, uh, a question I often get as a pastor is, do you play golf? And you would think that I would, considering I grew up in Florida, uh, but unfortunately I don't. Um, I do, however, like to play frisbee golf, disc golf. Um, I picked it up when I lived in Kansas City. There, there's several nice courses out there. Uh, one in particular that I like to play, uh, it's called Waterworks Park. And it's right by the water company up on a hill uh, with a great view of the skyline of the city. Um, but there are some stretches, um, certain holes, where there's real narrow stretch and like on one side is kind of like a hill and the other side is like a sheer drop and there's like all these trees down there. And so if your Frisbee veers off even just a little bit, like you'll find you, you have to climb down this hill like through these, through these brush, you know, to try to get your, your Frisbee. So one time I was, I was, I was playing that course and that particular hole where it just kind of, and my frisbee just went, and then it was like, oh, it, it was gone. And so uh, my friend said to me, uh, you get a mulligan. And for those of you who don't know what a mulligan is, uh, it's, it's a second chance. Um, I guess they, they have that in regular golf too. Um, it's a do-over. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, sometimes in life, by God's grace, uh, we get a second chance. And so this morning we're going to see that God in his mercy gave Jonah a mulligan. 
he gave him a second chance to get it right. So first, uh, just a, a quick recap on what we've covered so far in this series. So God told the Old Testament prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim judgment. Instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, Jonah gets on board a ship to Tarshish, which is about 2,000 miles in the other direction. God said, go, and Jonah said, no. Um, He hated the evil Assyrians, and he had no desire to see them receive God's mercy, God's forgiveness. You know, another possibility um, is that I'm sure it was on his mind that they would just, you know, if he walked into Nineveh, that they would just kill him. So that that was a very high likelihood. Either way, when you think about it through Jonah's mindset, it was a lose-lose proposition, right? So Jonah finds himself on a ship in the middle of the sea, uh, in the middle of a storm. The sailors start praying to their gods. Captain goes down below deck and he finds Jonah asleep. Uh, and then they, after they cast lots, and the sailors discover that the storm is Jonah's fault. Uh, he tells them that he's a Hebrew and that he worships the God who created the land and the sea. And the sailors are terrified. You're running from the God who created the sea, and you're in a boat on the sea? All right, Jonah tells them, uh, just throw me overboard, and that'll make the storm stop. And... Uh, course they 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 desperately try to row back to land doesn't work they finally give up they pray to Jonah's God and ask that they not be punished for throwing him overboard they hurl him over into the sea the storm stops immediately a big fish or maybe it's a whale the Bible isn't clear about that distinction swallows Jonah and he spends three days inside the whale you know, you've heard of Airbnbs. This is a water b and <laughs> Last week, uh, we saw Jonah inside the belly of, of a whale praying and repenting of his sin. And this week, we're in Jonah 3. So it begins with the following. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh. So God gave Jonah a second chance. He certainly didn't deserve it, but it was God's mercy towards Jonah. God could have let Jonah drown at sea. Um, He could have used someone else, but that's not how God works. He's the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, hundredth, thousandth chances, right? So I talked about uh, King David last week. God gave David a second chance after committing adultery with Bathsheba and essentially murdering her husband to try to cover it. God has given lots of people in the Bible second chances, right? A classic one is Peter. Remember Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus restored him and probably brought about some kind of inner healing Um, from the guilt that I'm sure was racking him um, by asking him three times, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Remember that story. So the point is, if you think you can't be used by God anymore because of all the things you've done, all the things you've done wrong, 
you were wrong. God wants to give you a second chance, just like he did with Jonah. So in verse 2, God says to Jonah, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. It's a reiteration of what he said in chapter 1. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. In chapter 1, Jonah did the opposite. This time he listens when God tells him to get up and go because it's his second chance. And it's interesting, the contrast here. In chapter 1, Jonah was running from God, and it was a series of steps downward, right? You remember, remember this. He went down to Joppa, he went down into the boat, he went down into the sea, and he went down into the belly of a whale. But now the Lord says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. You remember I mentioned last week the prodigal son. Get up and go get out of the muck and go back home to the Father. Don't go down into the darkness of sin and disobedience. Get up and walk into the light of repentance. It's interesting, he was going down, 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 and now he is going up. Notice, too, in this verse that God calls Nineveh a great city. Why is Nineveh great? It's not, it's not great, obviously, because it's good or because it's righteous. It's great because it's huge. We learn in chapter 4, we will learn in chapter 4, that it has over 120,000 people in it. The city walls of Nineveh were so thick that supposedly you, you could hold chariot races on top of them with three chariots across. So these are very thick walls. Also, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, Right, the world power of the day. And as I've said several times now, um, these people were brutal, they were wicked, and they were just plain evil. If you think about it, Jonah has no idea how this is going to play out. Uh, he doesn't know what the Lord's going to have him say. He doesn't know, really, if they'll just kill him or if they'll repent and be spared of God's wrath. All he knows is that God is calling him to go and say whatever God's going to tell him to say. So it is unconditional obedience. He doesn't get to make a deal with God. Jonah's expected to write a blank check with his life and allow God to fill in the blanks however he likes, trusting that God knows best. He realizes that this might be a suicide mission. Uh, but the last time he disobeyed God, he ended up in the belly of a whale. And so he figures he better start walking to Nineveh. Uh, but remember, um, he's just been vomited up by a whale onto the beach. Okay, so Nineveh is about roughly 500 miles inland. Uh, one commentary I read remarked, that it's possible that Jonah's skin might have been bleached from the stomach acid inside the whale. Pretty sure, though, I don't know if that's true, but pretty sure that he smelled like whale vomit. And then he walks, okay? How long does it take to walk 500 miles? Um, I have walked 30 miles before. Uh, it took me all day, right? It was dark when I started. It was dark when I arrived. So 500 miles walking probably took him a month or so. 
We don't know whether he walked straight through the desert or whether he went around it using the trade routes. But the Ninevites probably smelled him before they saw him. Um, and as Jonah approaches the city, um, he's probably seeing towers and temples and giant city walls bigger than anything he's ever seen before. He's probably in awe, um, but he knows that everything he is seeing has come at a price, right? Because of their reputation for conquest and brutality. So the Hebrew text here says that Nineveh was a great city of three days journey. And on the first day, Jonah preached one of the shortest sermons uh, ever. Five words in Hebrew, a few more in English. Okay? So listen closely or you'll miss it. I think they're going to put the Hebrew up on the screen. Yeah, there it is. So it's Od Erba Yom Nineveh Hafak. Five words. Od Erba Yom Nineveh Hafak. Okay? Yet, 40 days, Nineveh, and then the last word is basically, shall be overthrown. Okay. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's, that's uh, the way most Bibles translate it. And then he drops the mic and he walks away. Right. I added the mic part. That's not in the scripture. But that's essentially... The, the message he preaches, a five-word message. Sometimes us preachers, we get the notion that it's our eloquence or our skill at preaching that, pre, uh, that changes people's lives. Um, but, there's, but really, there is power in the Word of God, and it is God's Word that saves and transforms lives. God can use just a few words to bring about repentance in a person's life. Maybe you've heard of the famous Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he lived in the 1800s. Uh, he was once asked to preach somewhere, and before he began, he was just kind of testing the acoustics of the room. He got up in the pulpit, and he recited John 1.29, which says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And there was a worker there, um, probably someone cleaning or something like that, um, who heard those words and immediately came under the conviction of his sin and gave his life to Jesus. Literally, that was just a few words during a sound check. So there is power in God's word to bring about conviction and repentance. Also, in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, it says this, if I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will destroy it, I will not destroy it as I had planned. So that's an important truth for us to remember for sure. So as a result of this little five-word sermon, the Ninevites believed God and they repented. Verse 5 says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So notice the text says they believed God. Not that they believed in God, uh, but that they believed God. There's a difference 
between intellectual assent, believing in God, versus believing God in such a way that it changes how we live our lives. Faith that leads to action. Faith that causes us to restructure our priorities, right? Putting God first in our lives before everything else. Faith that causes us to restructure our calendar, our plans, our finances, even our plans for retirement. Faith that says, I am bound and determined to seek and follow God's leading in my life no matter what. How do you spell faith? It's spelled R-I-S-K. Over the years, I've led a number of classes, uh, prayer trainings and such, um, Holy Spirit events, where like, I say to God, this is my prayer, God, I have done what I can do, but if you don't show up, uh, this is going to be a flop. We might as well just go home. Right? It, when, you, when you do what you can do, and then you create this sort of place, this vacuum, this space in your life, where if God doesn't show up, like the whole thing's just going to go to pot, that's where faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And I've seen over and over and over again, God shows up. He is faithful. Right? At first I was, <laughs> I remember, at first I was quite afraid. I'm like, I'm just going out on a limb here, God, because if you don't show up, like literally, this is going to be a failure. And he always shows up. So for these Ninevites, they didn't just believe in God. They believed God and they repented of their sin. Believing God is doing what the people of Nineveh did here. Believing in such a way that it changes our lives. And we see that in their repentance. It says in the scripture that they fasted and they put on sackcloth. Um, they fasted to humble themselves before the Lord. And to take time, like the time they would have spent cooking and preparing their meals and eating, um, they took that time to pray and to confess their sin. Verse 6 says, When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So if you think about that, like that an Assyrian king would do such a thing as this, is a miracle. Um, the God who can bring about a storm or command a whale to swallow a man, hold him in his stomach for three days and then vomit him up on the beach, um, he does something even more awesome and difficult than those things. He changes the seemingly unchangeable hearts of wicked people. Like the fact that both the people of Nineveh and the king himself like instantly repented is proof that God not only spoke through Jonah, his prophet, but he spoke through his word. He added power to that word that was spoken by Jonah. Verses 7 through 9 um, say this. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. 
always find that fascinating, like what, trying to put sackcloth on these animals and they're like running from you. You know, just think through the details of that. Uh, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So I find it interesting. The king doesn't get defensive. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't justify. He doesn't try to shift blame. He actually acknowledges that they are evil and they're violent. And he doesn't just say to pray. He tells them to give up their evil ways. The king recognizes that God's wrath is about to fall on them, and he recognizes that it is justifiably so. He doesn't know. He doesn't know if God will relent. He doesn't know if God will show them mercy. He doesn't know if they're doomed. The king says, who knows? Who knows? And it's interesting. It's the same question that King David asked Remember when he prayed and he fasted and he wept because he was told that he was going to lose his first son, son that was conceived in adultery? It's in 2 Samuel 12, 22. He says, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. In David's case, of course, the child died. Um, will all of Nineveh die? king doesn't know. So the entire city does something that is unprecedented. They pray, they fast, they cry out to God, they renounce their sin, and then they wait. Um, in all the cities throughout all human history, has anything like this ever happened before? Like what we're seeing here in this story is called a revival. You've heard that word, revival, maybe. A revival is a work of God. And sometimes it's referred to as an awakening um, because in a revival, the people who are, and the people are awakened, right, once again to who God is and what it is he would have them do. Um, even though some people might tell you otherwise, revivals are not something that people can just work up. Um, they are something that God has to bring down. Right? Even so, Revivals have always been connected with movements of prayer, repentance, evangelism, obedience to God's word. Um, in a revival, God wakes sleepy Christians up. In a revival, nominal Christians will recommit their lives to Christ uh, at a much deeper level than ever before. In a revival... Non-Christians will come to faith in Christ, sometimes in droves. Um, in a revival, the church tends to become bold and zealous in its witness to the community. They're more likely to show God's love in practical ways um, through outreach and serving and feeding the poor and that kind of thing. And they're more likely to be bold in sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, there have been several revivals throughout history. I won't go into the whole history of them. Uh, but one I do want to point out is the Welsh Revival of 1904 and 1905. The Welsh Revival of 1904 and 1905. So if you haven't um, heard of this revival, studied it, um, you should because Life Church exists today 
in part because of that revival. Um, the Welsh revival began with one person praying, which then turned into a small prayer meeting. Um, and then suddenly through preaching and worship and spirit-led ministry, the Holy Spirit fell big time on the country of Wales. Um, and that resulted in that first year over 100,000 conversions. Um, almost overnight, crime stopped and entire communities were transformed. Um, things changed so much, um, like this is on record, things changed so much that police officers said there was nothing for them to do. Um, the movement then spread to Scotland and it spread to England with some people estimating that over a million people were converted in England. Then missionaries started carrying the movement abroad all the way to a little street named Azusa in Los Angeles, California. And it was there in 1906 that the Azusa Street Revival broke out and started the Pentecostal movement. And from that came the Assemblies of God, Foursquare, Church of God, Vineyard, and other non-denominational charismatic churches, including Life Church. All of that came from the kindling the spark, right, of one person whose heart burned for the Lord in prayer. So back to the Ninevites. If you remember Jonah uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, it says, salvation is from the Lord. The Holy Spirit took Jonah's words and set them on fire in the Ninevites' hearts. Uh, the message was preached by a prophet who was, at best, lukewarm to the idea of Nineveh receiving any mercy. Um, but God still used those words to start the greatest revival in the Bible. Um, it was a bottom-up revival. The people started to pray, they started to fast, and then the message reached the king. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Now, the Ninevites had some understanding of this, this passage I'm about to share with you from Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. It says, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. So one of the things we see throughout Jonah is, is this idea um, of everything being large. Everything being large, okay? The task assigned to Jonah is large. The storm was large. The fear of the sailors was large. The whale was large. The city of Nineveh was large. The effect of Jonah's very short sermon was large. And the revival that broke out in Nineveh was large. God literally humbled a huge, violent, arrogant city and caused all of them to repent. It is the biggest revival in all of human history in terms of saturation, right? 100% of the city converts. Everything that happens in the book of Jonah is large, okay? That's the point I'm making. And yet, 
The instrument that God uses to bring about all of this is a failed, runaway, washed-up prophet. So let's think about that. If you are a football coach and your team is facing the biggest play in the biggest game of the season, who do you choose to make that play? You choose your best player, right? Okay, if you are a business leader and you're trying to land your biggest account, who do you give that responsibility to? Right? You give it to your account executive who has the best track record. We would all probably choose our best performers to take on the most important tasks, right? That, that makes the most sense. But God uses the broken. He uses the defeated. He uses the failures to make the big plays. Jonah learned a lesson while sitting in the belly of a whale. We hear it through the prayer that he prayed. What is the lesson? God is sovereign over all of creation. He is large and in charge. And I am weak, I am small, I am broken, and I am utterly dependent on him. That's the secret. That's the lesson. God chooses the weak, he uses the small, he uses the broken, he uses the defeated people to do great things in the kingdom of God. You know this scripture I'm about to share. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. You know this. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jonah is one of the greatest examples of how God uses human weaknesses and failures to accomplish amazing things. He is a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross. 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, although he was crucified in weakness, he now lives by the power of God. You've, how many of you have heard of uh, Ted Turner? He's the media mogul, um, he's a billionaire, he started CNN. Um, Ted Turner is a self-proclaimed agnostic, and he once said that, quote, Christianity is a religion for losers. Now, uh, he la- <laughs> when he got some heat, he later, uh, he retracted the statement, he made, he made an apology. Um, but he's actually right. Christianity is a religion for losers. If anything is clear in the Gospels, it is that Jesus is for losers. It's the winners, the big dogs, the people in charge who have a hard time with Jesus. The Gospel is this, that Jesus is for losers. Luke 6, 20 and 21, and then 24 through 26 says, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you 
who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your own, only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised false prophets. The truth is this. Jesus really loves losers. Um, the weak, the small, the broken, the defeated, the ones who feel like they're at the end of their rope. We sometimes forget the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, and we listen to the world's values. We court the favor of the rich and the powerful, the influencers of this fallen world order, by convincing them that we're not a loser, that we're one of the winners. But we court the favor of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, in just the opposite manner, by admitting to him that we are one of the losers. Jesus loves losers. He's partial to them. They're his favorites. Remember when we were, back when we were kids and uh, um, there were kids on the playground picking teams? For some of you, like, this is a traumatic memory <laughs> when they're picking teams. Uh, captains usually pick the players for their teams, right, starting with the most athletic and then they kind of move down the line. And uh, the biggest loser either gets picked last or perhaps not even picked at all. Um, Captain Jesus picks his team differently. He starts with the losers. He picks a team of losers and then he wins the championship with them. As it turns out, Christianity is a team of losers with one really, really good superstar on the team. And we have his spirit inside of us. If you want to win on the end, in the end, you have to be on Jesus' team. Um, you say, Jesus, I really suck at life. I have screwed up everything. And Jesus says, great, be on my team and we will win the championship. Think about it. Who did Jesus reach out to? Who did, who did Jesus go out of his way to meet? Nobody's. The marginalized, the forgotten on the fringe of society. And what about when Jesus was in the presence of the wealthy and the influential and the most powerful? Right? Like Caiaphas, like Herod, like Pilate. Not a lot of interest. Christianity does not need more celebrities. Christianity doesn't need to pander for the help and the endorsement of the politically powerful or the wealthy. Like Jonah shows us, God is sovereign over all of creation. He is large and he is in charge and I am weak, I am small, I am broken, and I am utterly dependent on him. 
Thankfully, God chooses the weak, the small, the broken, the messed up people to do great things in his kingdom. Jesus will defeat the dark powers of this world with his team of underdogs. And the Bible says in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I want to close with a poem. Uh, title of the poem is Conversion by Lucy Shaw. It'll come up on the, on the screen there. He was a born loser, accident prone too. Never won the lottery, married a girl who couldn't cook, broke his leg the day before the wedding, and forgot the ring. That's a, that's a rough day. He was the kind who ended up behind a post in almost any auditorium. Planes he was booked to fly on were delayed by engine trouble with sickening regularity. His holidays at the beach were almost always ruined by rain. All his apples turned out wormy. His letters came back marked, moved, left no address. And it was his car that was cited for speeding from among a flock of others going 60 in a 55-mile zone. <laughs> so it was a real shocker when he found himself elected, chosen by grace for salvation, felt the exhilaration of an undeserved and wholly unexpected joy, and tasted for the first time the glory of being on the winning side. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you give us second chances, that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you use the weak, and the broken, the defeated, the marginalized to do great things in your kingdom. Thank you that you are using your team of underdogs to defeat the dark powers of this world and to bring your kingdom to the earth. Thank you that we will accomplish this, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. God, I pray for those here who need to hear this encouragement today. That they are elected, they are chosen by grace for salvation. That they would feel the exhilaration of an undeserved and wholly unexpected joy and taste for the first time the glory of being on the winning side the side of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. We love you. It's in your name we pray.